welcome to a grad chat your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at queens my name is cj the dj and i'm your host for this week's grad chat of course a show like this could not happen without the support of the school of graduate studies and cfrc so thank you very much to both of them now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. And just a reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we do this in the studio. So our apologies. But as I say every single week, at least we're still doing the programming because I don't want you to miss out on what our students are doing. So here we go. We'll, we'll, we'll make it um, the best we can. And of course, that also depends on everyone's internet connections. But we seem to be okay today, which is fantastic. So with that being said... I would like to introduce you to Samantha Tweetmeyer, who is doing a PhD in political studies under the supervision of Dr. John McGarry. Welcome to Grad Chat, Samantha. Happy to be here. Now, Sam, uh, I noticed you did your master's over at Ulster University in Northern Ireland. Is that why uh, why Northern Ireland is part of your research, without going into your research, but is that why you had a a propensity to go towards that way? Uh, It certainly did help, absolutely. Uh, And oddly, I started, I got accepted into the PhD program with a completely different project, which was supposed to be on Iraq. (laughs) And um, unfortunately... That's a little different. Yeah, yeah. Well, the summer before I, I arrived, ISIS happened, and basically the department sat me down and said, how about we don't do Iraq? And so then I kind of had to re-dig in. And because I had already previously done my master's in Northern Ireland, I'd studied Northern Ireland, and I was very confident with the case. That's really one of the reasons why it topped the list when I was looking at cases that would fit my project. Yeah, because it made it easier. I knew people there. It was it was better. Yeah. But was it a little disappointing not going to do the, the research that you thought you were going to? It most definitely was. Yeah. Yeah, it it really changed larger aspects of what I research. And I was really excited to do that work because I had previously done work on Afghanistan that was similar. And I was hoping to sort of expand that previous work into Iraq. And it, yeah, I wasn't able to do that. So it, it was a loss. But that's a shame. But then I guess looking at your research topic that you've given to me prior to the interview, it looks like, again, because of you, you've, you've been living in Northern Ireland and things that this is a great opportunity as well. So it's not like you were starting from scratch. You did have a bit of that background to get get yourself started. Exactly. Yeah. No, this, this project as a whole wound up being absolutely incredible. And I'm very happy that this is what I've been working on. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> because you've got four years of doing it. So there you go. So, <laughs> so your research, we should get into it because people are going, so what, Colette, what's going on here? So your research topic is the double minority dilemma and conflict settlement negotiations in Cyprus and Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. So do you want to give us a bit of an overview of what you're doing there? Yeah, so essentially... What brought me to this research project is I have an I have a overarching interest in looking into the effectiveness and even normative questions around intervention and sort of international third parties interfering with, assisting with, 
settlement negotiations, right? So what we have in the cases of Northern Ireland and Cyprus are these two civil conflicts which were resolved through the uh, intervention of third-party actors or external parties. And, well, we have a, a resolution in Northern Ireland and a failed resolution in Cyprus, I should say. So the right. what really one of the really interesting questions that came out in my early, early research on the two cases was this idea that am I actually looking at intervention or are these actors already part of the conflict? They're part of the conflict already. And so even though they seem external, and what I'm talking about here is like the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom in the case of Northern Ireland and Turkey right. and Greece in the case of Cyprus, right? The, we, right? We refer to them as kin states in the literature because they each share kinship with one of the conflict parties in the two cases. And I start right. realizing that these actors are part of the conflict and that's where the double minority dilemma thesis emerges. And this is a terminology that I found vaguely referenced in a couple of writings that really has not been uh, elaborated on in any meaningful way. The double minority syndrome has been referred to in some cases. And this is where, because of these external geopolitical presences, right, you've got Turkey and Greece surrounding the island of Cyprus, and you've got the United Kingdom okay. actually housing Northern Ireland, right, as Northern Ireland yeah. is part of the United Kingdom and, and on the island of Ireland. What you have is inside these cases, in Northern Ireland, there is a numerical minority. Uh, that is the Catholic population or what I refer to in my research as the Republican movement. And that's the, the parties to the conflict who want to unite with the Republic of Ireland. And then you have the numerical majority, which is the unionists of Northern Ireland or the Protestants. And I call them unionists mm-hmm. because it's the political movement that wants to unite with the United Kingdom, right? So, or stay united with them, I should say. So that's, that's what you have there. You have a numerical minority and majority, but the unionist and Protestant population in Northern Ireland is a significant numerical minority on the island of Ireland. And so they feel like they are under threat and that their case, their position in this conflict is justifiable because of the threat that they are constantly under. In the face of the uh, Republican movement and the Catholics in Northern Ireland being also, you know, justified in their opinion that they are a minority under threat, right? So there you have a double minority. Yeah. And we have the same problem in Cyprus. So in Cyprus, you have the Greek Cypriot population, which is the numerical majority on the island of Cyprus. And you have a Turkish Cypriot population, which is the numerical minority. So, of course, the Turkish Cypriots believe that they are the minority under threat on the island of Cyprus uh, because they are significantly outnumbered. But the Turkish Cypriots have the support of Turkey, who militarily intervened on the island in 1974. And so the Greek Cypriot population... And and the island of Cyprus is south of Turkey. So its most close neighboring state is Turkey, right? So um, geopolitically, uh, the Greek Cypriots believe themselves to be the minority under threat. And so again, you have a double minority dilemma. Neither of these conflicts then, in that sense, exist if you don't consider the external parties. So they are part of the conflict. They are not intervening. Does that make sense? (laughs) 
It does, but it's um, quite convoluted, though, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Because because, because when the, those third parties, you don't see them in that way of being part of this dilemma <laughs> that they're facing. Absolutely, yeah. And it gets it gets so, even so, crazier when I start bringing in other parties, which also add to the double minority dilemma. Yeah. Okay, so explain then the double minority dilemma theory. Right. So I found the terminology double minority syndrome, which is what I'm talking about. And that has been reflected on in conflict literature. And I combine it with prominent literature set in political science called security dilemma theory. And I come at this from expertise in negotiations. And so I know what the impact of the security dilemma is on negotiations, which is when you are negotiating, at some point you have to give up something, right? You're trading with your partner. And so you're balancing your personal security with a future outcome, you know, of more security or less security. And so there's, that's the security dilemma piece that's really core to any conflict settlement negotiation. How do you make sure that both parties feel uh, secure in the outcome of the negotiation? And then I combine that with this double minority syndrome, which I just described as being this both parties believe themselves to be the absolutely justified minority party. So why should they give up their trappings of security? They're the ones under threat, right? The other side should give it up, right. not, not me, right? And so there's that's the double minority dilemma. And what I look at in the two cases is how in Northern Ireland, by expanding the pie, as it were, bringing in other international actors through a process of internationalization, and by securing the relationships of those external actors. So in particular, the main takeaway I want people from this is, or to take away from this, is the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland developing a positive relationship. That is huge. It changes the double minority dilemma because they are no longer in conflict. Now there's a security around the position of the two minorities uh, in Northern Ireland because it's been... And that's the the security there is the fact that they still see themselves as part of the United Kingdom and not separate. Uh, for the for the unionists or Protestants, yes, they they for the Protestants, yeah, they they see themselves as part of the United Kingdom, so they are secure in their existence, and the agreement allows for a unity vote should the um, should the Catholic population basically outnumber the Protestant population, and or a vast majority of people in Northern Ireland decide that they would prefer to be part of the Republic of Ireland, the final agreement allows for a unity vote, which can be taken to then join uh, the whole of Ireland together and remove Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom. So in the meantime, the Union Protestant population or the Unionist political movement, they get what they want, and there's a future possibility that the Irish Catholic population or the Republican political movement will get what they want. Wow. Wow, that's come a long way. Because I remember, <laughs> and I'm just talking about the Northern Ireland part here, I remember back as a kid, because oh, sure. I, I lived in the UK, yeah, before in, uh, in the um, well, 60s and early 70s, and of course all this was really heightened around that time. So it's interesting to listen to this. Of, of how it's all going. I'm glad it's a bit more peaceful than it was then. Mm. So, mm-hmm. okay, so let's get back then. I mean, 
I mean, you've, you've chosen two areas, okay, uh, Northern Ireland and, of course, Cyprus. And you know, there's probably many examples of conflict settlement negotiations with intervening states. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell us about these two cases and their key similarities and differences that drew you to them for your thesis? Because you said in the beginning that one succeeded and one didn't. Yeah, absolutely. So that is, I mean, that's the main, if you're looking at comparative method, right? So what I've done is two most similar cases with one that succeeded and one failed. And so then I can start to look for the trigger for that. And that's where I find the double minority dilemma and and everything else. But when I was selecting the cases, as, as we've already established, I knew I wanted to look at intervention. I had already decided to look at Northern Ireland, and that immediately changed my interpretation of what type of intervention I was looking for. So there are, there are lots of conflicts out there with intervening states, but I needed to narrow it down to so that I could compare similar intervening actors. So first of all, the two kin states was a big part of this, but we've got other cases that look like that as well. Another thing that really stuck out for these two cases as comparable is the European periphery. That's very important. The fact that the European Union exists is important in both cases. Um, They're both former British colonies. So the UK is important in both cases, and there's a history of the UK in both cases. A really important aspect of studying conflict resolution and negotiations is timing. And so what's really interesting about these two cases is how close together these two processes happen. One, the, the main part of the negotiation happens, you know, 1996 to 1998, And then that's Northern Ireland. And then you have the 2000 to 2004 in Cyprus. And so they're close enough together that geopolitically, there isn't a significant amount of difference. You know, it's not like I'm comparing a Cold War era case with a post-Cold War era. Right. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, the the world hadn't changed as much in that particular time period. Exactly. Although, of course, Mm -hmm. in Cyprus, the impact of 9-11 is not unimportant. It is actually very important. Right. But yeah, they were close enough that you're looking at these similar spaces of time And one of the really interesting things is they're both islands. It doesn't really play too much into my thesis, but it is super interesting to look at. There's a preference in the international community as a whole that islands should just be islands, you know, that that, uh, Cyprus should be united, it should not be divided, that Northern Ireland should just be in Ireland. You know, there's this sort of (laughs) knee-jerk reaction to an island, which I find interesting. And, you know, if I was to take a third case on that alone, you know, Sri Lanka would be an interesting choice. Unfortunately, when you look at kin states in Sri Lanka, India doesn't intervene. It's not active. It doesn't take a part in it. And that, so it kind of removes it from my case collection, yeah. Can, can I ask, because you, I mean, Sri Lanka, I can see where the, the connection there is with like this my, this minority theory sort of comes in. Mm-hmm. Would would another country be um, something like the Falklands as well? And I, I know we're, we're picking islands all the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is that because the, the, the British and the Argentinians, is that, would that be a, potentially a similar place? Um, it I'd say yes and no, and that's only because the population of the Falklands is not at war with itself. 
Oh, good point. The, yeah. Yes. But you, you, you have a similar kin state situation there, or you have a similar sort of, yes. you know, where the UK and Argentina are in conflict over the island. And that is certainly something that was true in the history of Northern Ireland and, or, and Ireland and the history of Cyprus. But today's conflict is, is very different because what I'm looking for is very different. two populations who live on the island who are in conflict with each other and how they need to sit down at the table and negotiate their way to a peace. And the, the, right. the big, there's this big chunk of the theory, critical theory that really emerges after 9-11 and after the intervention in Afghanistan, a bunch of critical theory emerged pointing out that international intervention has done more harm than good in many cases. You, uh-huh. you know, you, you go in to stop a conflict and you try to give these people peace, but if they're not the ones sitting yeah. at the table across from each other, it doesn't last. And that's that's where I really come at this sort of, okay, what is the impact of these third parties? Can I ask you another question then in with what's going on at the moment, mm-hmm. Brexit? Yeah. So how does the European Union come into this? I mean, because both were within the the union. Mm -hmm. And so are there similarities and differences in the EU's relationship with the two negotiation processes? And and if so, what might this tell us about EU intervention more broadly? Because you said other people can be, there are other third parties there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, so the European Union is, is very important in both cases, but in very different ways. And this is hugely impactful when it comes to talking about Brexit. So I'll start with Cyprus because it's a little bit easier and I can sort of tear it off. And then, um, and it's not easier, it's not easier in that it doesn't matter. It actually matters more. So in Cyprus, the problem in, in 19, through the 1990s, the Republic of Cyprus government is negotiating with the European Union to get an accession arrangement to join the EU. And the European Union, by 1999, has established an agreement with both Cyprus and Turkey that says if there's a peace agreement in Cyprus, uh, then Cyprus can accede to the EU. If that all successfully happens, then Turkey gets to accede to the EU, right? So, yeah, Turkey gets a bonus. Exactly. And And it entices Turkey to support a peace agreement in Cyprus, right? They want... You know, you got to get a peace agreement in Cyprus to get Cyprus into the EU, and you've got to get that all done in order for Turkey to have a shot at the EU. So this all seems well and good. This is a really great example of using a carrot, you know, to entice an actor to act uh, in a way that you want. But in 2003, the European Union decides unilaterally that regardless of a resolution on the island of Cyprus, the Republic of Cyprus will be allowed to join the EU. And Okay, I bet Turkey, would Turkey happy with that? No, it, it, it basically removed, because Turkey still based on, is there a peace agreement in Cyprus? They have to get the peace agreement in Cyprus in order to, right. yeah. So, um, so no, it basically kicks Turkey out of the question and it removes the carrot and or the stick from the Greek Cypriot population. So suddenly the Greek Cypriots are getting into the EU no matter what happens. And they're way less willing to make necessary sacrifices because as the dominant majority on the island, they do have to make sacrifices for a peace agreement in Cyprus. They've got to give up 
power, you know? And so, so yeah, they no longer have a reason to do that. And that is, has been pointed to by many people as the main, main reason that the Anand plan failed. I, I don't think that's the only reason. And my thesis goes into a lot more explanation (laughs) as to why that's just one piece of the puzzle there. And, and that's important for understanding why they still can't get an agreement today. Um, so that that's EU. So obviously the EU is way more important in Cyprus in terms of that carrot stick thing. However, in Northern Ireland, both the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland are already in the EU by the time of the 1990s. And they are operating within the EU. The United Kingdom being the national you know, country within which Northern Ireland sits, they don't want intervention. They're very resistant. You know, they don't let the UN get involved and they don't want the EU involved uh, because they they call it a domestic conflict. However, in the 1970s, before, before both the UK and Ireland joined the EU in 1974, Ireland is a very politically weak country. It doesn't have a lot of bargaining power with the UK and there's a lot of animosity. When they both join the EU, this starts them down a path towards a better working relationship. And that's very important. So once they're both in the EU, the Republic of Ireland has a forum where it can stand on equal footing across from the UK and make demands, which it had never had before. And that's really important for sort of equalizing their power in that relationship. Another piece of this is that there are representatives in Northern Ireland at the EU as well, because they get a seat at the EU through Westminster. And then suddenly you have people who weren't talking in Northern Ireland standing across from each other in the EU parliament and talking to each other. So the EU provides an environment. The last thing it does environmentally is it erases the border on the island. And this is where Brexit matters. So membership in the European Union for both the UK and Ireland results in an Ireland that doesn't really have a border. They're both in the customs union. You know, you've got this trade you don't have to have a border there citizens can travel freely within the eu so there's no question about having to check people's passports all these things right so it allows for there not to be a border on the island of ireland and this is really huge for achieving the peace agreement Right. When Brexit, but now that's been blown. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so when oops, that's a big oops, isn't it's it? It's a huge <laughs> oops. It's a huge oops. And I was astounded as to how few people were talking about how impactful Brexit was going to be for Northern Ireland. Prior to all of a sudden, they're in negotiations and they need this backstop out of nowhere. And everyone's like, what? What? Northern Ireland exists? We forgot, you know? <laughs> and yes, it, yes. it's huge. It's huge. Because if you get a hard border on the island of Ireland, what you produce is targets. You know, a lot of people were like, is Brexit going to create conflict? Brexit itself doesn't create conflict. What creates conflict is we now have UK, you know, police force members at checkpoints on a border on the island of Ireland. That's that's targets. That's where violence starts again, right? Like that's that's where that happens. So 
Luckily, we don't have that. They were not able to get the backstop. What they did come up with is this really awkward arrangement where they have a, how do they phrase it? I wrote this down, so I got it right. Um, <laughs> a <laughs> de jure border on the island of Ireland. So technically, the customs border is between Northern Ireland and Ireland, but it's a de facto right. border between the two islands. So they're not enforcing the de jure border on the island, that what they're doing is they're putting in place customs checks between the two islands so that when stuff goes from Northern Ireland to the UK and vice versa, it gets checked. So that's... It gets checked. Yeah, that's the current arrangement. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see how that works. Absolutely. It's only been in place for about half a year. So we're... um, (laughs) I guess like a year technically, but the actual mechanics have only been in place since the summer. Uh, But yeah, so it's going to be really interesting to see how that works out in the end. The other thing that Brexit is creating is... Well, so almost 60% of people who lived in Northern Ireland voted remain. So it's very interesting to see if this whole leaving the EU thing will shift Protestant votes over to the Catholic side for a unit unit vote. Yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. That's true. So it's kind of really opening things up again, isn't it? It it really is. Yeah, absolutely. That's an interesting one. And how does that work with Cyprus? Um, Because you made a note here about whether it's the EU or even your research, how is it looking at how COVID-19 has affected what's going on in Cyprus at all? Well, you know, with coordinated responses, you know, who helps them? Does Turkey help them? Does Greece help them? Yeah, exactly. Good question. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's really interesting, actually, and kind of an easy segue is that because because of the way that the border is part of this huge problem in in Northern Ireland, when COVID happened, they didn't close that border. Um, so, there's actually been a lot of interesting stuff in Ireland about you know a lot of the people in the Republic of Ireland are angry that Northern Irish people keep coming you know, crossing the border because the Republic has often had way less cases than the UK. So, yeah, so there's been some tension there, but they didn't close the border. In Cyprus, Cyprus is, of course, it's a national state to itself, right? And it has the government, the the Republic of Cyprus in the south, and the um, only recognized by the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus in the north. And what happened was the Republic of Cyprus in the south under uh, Anastasiades, they unilaterally closed checkpoints on the island. Uh, island. I'm going to have to back up real quick. In Cyprus, no in order to prevent conflict, there is a UN green line. The U- United Nations monitors a border straight through the island that separates the two people. And there are wow. points across that border for people to cross from north to south. So that's wow. important. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> important thing to note. So <laughs> but when the Republic of Cyprus unilaterally decided to close those checkpoints, there were a lot of protests. A lot of people who want to see a united Cyprus got very angry that this was treating COVID-19 as if there were two separate peoples on the island instead of treating it as an right. all-island solution. This also motivated more nationalism in the north. They elected in October a much more nationalist president who who is seeking independence for the North as opposed to a United Cyprus agreement. And one of the aspects of that recently has been with the COVID vaccine. The leader, Ersan Tatar in the North, he was quoted saying that 
they wouldn't allow the Republic of Cyprus to give them the EU's shipment of vaccines. They want it direct from the EU. Otherwise, they will only deal with Turkey. And that has upset a lot of people because, you know, it should, again, it should be an all-island solution. But there's this nationalism coming into it. Wow. Talk about awkward. Mm, yeah. I mean, luckily it's not a big island, but it still goes to show, doesn't it, when there's two major peoples on, on in a particular country, so to speak, that these things can happen so quickly, such as something like COVID. Absolutely. They can switch things or something like a third party sort of pulling their weight, such as Brexit. Mm-hmm. We know the UK decided to go out, even though Northern Ireland was part of the UK. But it just goes to show how unstable some of these things can be when there's no real clear definition a definition of where they belong. Exactly. Yes. Both these cases are just existing in a holding pattern. And that holding pattern, because of the double minority dilemma, is so ingrained with any geopolitical shift at all that it affects them so significantly. Yeah. Not easy. No. Not easy for them. I mean, I hate to be a politician in any of those countries. Absolutely. It, to try and keep both, both groups happy. I can't even imagine. I can't. Um, I, I honestly can't. Uh, and I interviewed a lot of politicians in both countries. So, yeah, the, the politicians themselves are also really at, at their wits' ends on, on a lot of issues. Particularly in Cyprus, you know, they've been in negotiations now on and off every five years or so. And they're just really not getting anywhere. And one of the really interesting things with the EU and Turkey is in the early 2000s, at the time of the Anan plan process, it was named as such because it was done by the United Nations under then Secretary General Kofi Annan. The right. Anan process in Cyprus happened at a time when Erdogan had just come to power in Turkey and was, you know, this bastion of democratic reform. He was going to open up, you know, minority rights and all these things and was going to get Turkey into the EU by conforming to EU standards, all this lovely stuff. So the timing seemed really good and it failed. And since then, of course, we know Erdogan has gone completely the other direction, is an incredibly nationalist leader with some very restrictive policies towards his people and has driven a more nationalist agenda in the north of Cyprus as well in order to try and push for a more independent northern Cyprus. And in the negotiations that were sort of leading up to 2017, the Turkish Cypriots had elected a pro-unity leader who was actively working against Erdogan. Like, you know, was sort of going, we're not going to do what you want. We're doing our own thing. We're our own people. That president, uh, Kinshi, has now been defeated by Ersin Tatar, who is a pro-Turkey, pro-Erdogan leader. So that's going to make negotiations in Cyprus much more interesting. It just goes to show the fragility of of some countries still, you know, in this day where there's these these dilemmas, it's a perfect word to use, mm-hmm. where these dilemmas exist. And ha- like I said, how fragile some of them can be with just one, ch- one change. And sometimes that change, is, as you mentioned, is a change because of one person, one political person mm-hmm. or a country as a whole or people around making changes with, without looking at the effect, is that the, the knock-on effect? Yeah, you know, for sure. In Brexit in Northern Ireland, you know, 
Uh, that is absolutely the case. Most of the people of what, what you would refer to as the Great Britain part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland are, they're just, they don't pay attention to Northern Ireland at all. And why should they? It doesn't impact their lives, right? So it's really interesting. Not, not easy for them. Well, it is. And, and, and thank you for, for explaining that to us because I had no idea about this dilemma, <laughs> double minority dilemma, both for, for Northern Ireland and also for Cyprus. So thank you for giving us those two examples. And I know they're the ones that you're using, but they're great examples, I think, that most people could understand. So I appreciate you coming on and telling us about that. And I wish you the best of luck. I know it wasn't the research you intended to do for your PhD, <laughs> but you've clearly got your teeth into it. Oh, yes, absolutely. I am just writing at this point it just needs I've got everything I need for it I just have to finish it so particularly if you've got all these good ideas and things but it sounds like you know what you're talking about so that's that's (laughs) that's good because you explained it really well and I know you have to write a few more words than just you know what we can say in 29 minutes but can I just talk for two hours (laughs) and then get my thesis done that would be great I actually think that would be so much easier but of course um, I I don't control the rules (laughs) Well, well, Sam, thank you again so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Uh, who knows what's next, but I'm sure both countries too would be interested in hearing your, your research. So thank you for that. Oh, I absolutely hope so. I hope I, hope I can be useful. Uh, those of us who study conflict processes, we don't just do research for academic sake, right? We want to help. So, yes, yeah, you do. And, and I think you will, because just, just highlighting how, how it all works because uh, most people don't know, they just hear what you hear in the, in the media, but um, breaking it down as, you know, because of this, this has happened and, and so forth, mm-hmm. then maybe they will think a little bit better or a little quicker next time of everything, of how things affect each other. Absolutely. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for letting me come on to the show. You're very welcome. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to say uh, to everyone, Another week of Brad Chat sadly comes to an end. Oh. But don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Music